Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Griefsters. Hope you're having an okay week. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you genuinely so much. I was so overwhelmed at the reaction that I am currently writing a book called Surprise, Surprise, You Are Not Alone. Um, I was a bit nervous, I guess, of announcing it. You know, you don't know, people might be like, well, why? Um, but you were all really wonderful. And yeah, I genuinely, genuinely appreciate that. Um, as ever, we have two live episodes coming up and I've been banging on about them for ages. But just to remind you, 15th of September at the London Podcast Festival with Tom Parry, Jenny Bede and Kima Bob. And then we're going to be at St Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital on the 26th of September. Um, I'll tweet the link to that and the King's Place one as well. Um, or head to the King's Place website for the podcast festival. And yeah, again, genuinely thank you to everyone who listens to this show and tells people about it and emails me and tweets about it it it's just really amazing <laughs> to know that it's helping so thank you this week i'm talking to anna lyons anna is a death doula and the founder of a movement called life death whatever um i thoroughly recommend looking at their website lifedeathwhatever.com they have a series called five things which is all sorts of different people including our last week's guest dr Catherine mannix uh, just talking about five things they've learned from dying or working with dying people or things they didn't realize they would think if they had a short prognosis all sorts of things it's just a really beautiful wonderful website as i said anna is a death doula she has helped 
a myriad of people um, leave this world and she actually wanted to dedicate this episode to two people. So uh, this is dedicated firstly to Lois Tonkin. Uh, She'd been given a short life limiting prognosis and she wrote really beautifully about the experience on the um, website on the Five Things Project. Um, So do have a look at what she wrote because it's it's beautiful and Anna actually said she single-handedly changed the face of grief I'm not sure anyone will have such an impact again so she's definitely worth looking at and it's also dedicated to Kath Dean who died this year as well Uh, Kath was someone that Anna had been working with for a long time described herself as runner parent feminist unfortunate cancer girl proud anti-brexit metropolitan liberal elite in her twitter profile but she was so much more than that says Anna and no one wore red lipstick so well so obviously Anna yeah helps people leave this world and she really wanted Lois and Kath to be remembered this week. Here's me talking to Anna. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with Anna Lyons, who is an end-of-life doula and also the co-director and co-founder of Life Death Whatever. Hello. Morning. (laughs) Morning. Um, There's so many things immediately I want to ask you. But let's start with just the organisation. So what is Life, Death, Whatever? Um, We started off as, I guess, a festival. Oh, nice. We were asked by the National Trust to take over one of their buildings for a whole month and to put on something every day about end of life, death, dying, grief. I was going to make a terrible joke about the people who visit the National Trust. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, thought, I thought better of it. Yeah. <laughs> the a nas- certain age, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> the National Trust, um, one of their taglines is that they're in the business of immortality. Oh, wow. Because they're there trying to yeah, preserve, everything. preserve everything. And we are the absolute antithesis of that. We're yeah. trying to get people to understand and accept their mortality. Yeah. So it was quite an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. So is it... Um, a charity or a foundation is just trying to yeah, raise we, the topic of mortality? Yeah, I guess we would call ourselves a collective now. Um, we put on events and we're writing a book. So we really, we're, we say that we're trying to redesign the dialogue around end of life, death and dying. Amazing. So did that happen before you became an end of life doula? Did you, or was it, you were an end of life doula and then you got Yeah, involved. I've worked at end of life for almost 20 years. Wow. And I met Louise Winter about three years ago. And she was moving from the fashion world into death and dying. She became a, a funeral celebrant and now she's a progressive funeral director. Wow. We met and we started talking um, and decided that we would sort of set up Life, Death, Whatever together. So it came on the back of her being asked to run a series of death cafes for the National Trust. And we decided that instead of doing that, we would turn it into something completely different. Yeah. God, amazing. So... You've been working end of life for twenty years as yeah, a doula. Almost. No, or? no, in lots of in lots and lots of different guises. So I worked therapeutically. I've worked um, as a project worker, working in a specialist place for HIV, in in lots and lots of different ways. Wow. What? <laughs> I'm sure you get asked this. What made you think? I know where I'm going to work. Like. Those people who are dying, like, was were you interested in as a child or...? Um, my best friend died when I was 17. Wow. And I decided pretty much the day that he died that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to 
change the way people died. That's amazing. Well, <laughs> a little bit arrogant, I think, no. if I'm really honest. No, arrogant now. is like the most <clears throat> negative way of looking at that. That sounds incredibly inspirational. I think when you're 17, you probably think you can change the world. Which is a good thing. You need those people yeah. to think that. No, definitely, because if we didn't have 17-year-olds saying they were going to change the world, like a lot of other stuff wouldn't get done. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like that attitude of not yeah. really knowing how you're going to do something, it's quite useful. So what did he die of? What happened? Um, he died of malignant melanoma. Wow. So uh, basically skin cancer. At 17? Uh, no, he, he was 23 oh, when I he died. Right. But still, um, very young. He didn't tell anyone that he was dying. So because he was over 18, he didn't have to share any information and he chose wow. not to share any information. And every time we asked him what was going on or I asked him many times, are you going to be OK? And his response was always, they wouldn't be doing all of this if I wasn't. So none of us knew he was going to die. I think we wow. did know. Yeah. He took me to see Dying Young twice at the cinema. <laughs> Him. Looking back, I think maybe Mate. he was... Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the movie? <laughs> we, but we both said how dreadful it was and then he took me back. Um, he spent lots of time writing me very, very beautiful letters. And I would go and see him in the intensive care unit. And I still... I think I probably knew and yeah. I think he knew that I knew but we didn't have the vocabulary or the emotional maturity or the maybe we didn't want to and I and I I look at it now because I've written about it quite a lot mm. of times and I and I sometimes think he felt totally out of control of what was happening to his body yeah. he couldn't change what was happening but what he could do was control what people knew and how he died and I think in a way he was protecting us mm. I think he wanted to be seen to be living right up to the end he wow. wanted to be doing everything he possibly could and they I found out after he died sort of a lot, a lot of the things I know about how unwell he was came retrospectively so I found out that he had been told a very long time before he died that they couldn't make him better, wow. that he was living with a life-limiting illness. Um, and a tumour grew in the chamber of his heart. And oh my goodness the, hosp me. the hospital asked if they wanted um, the priest to come in. And he basically said, no, fuck off. Of course I don't. I'm 23. Don't be so ridiculous. Mm. And they flew him to Southampton to do emergency heart surgery, wow. knowing that that wasn't going to save him. Yet we all thought it was. Yeah. We all thought he had a blockage and that they were just going to remove it and he would be all right. So were you with him when he died? I had just landed... Um, and I phoned the hospital and I said, please, can you let him know that I'm coming? And my dad picked me up and he said, we're just going to pop home first. We'll take your bags and then I'll take you to the hospital. And I got back home um, and I rang the hospital again to say, I've just got back home. I'm going to be 10 minutes. And they said, I'm really sorry, it's too late. Oh. And you were 17? Yeah. So was that your first big grief, that first big sort of... My nana had died on my birthday and my granddad had died. But I was quite young, so although I have very vivid memories of them mm. and their deaths, 
it was the first time that somebody who was absolutely integral, and that's not taking away their roles as my yeah. grandparents, but when you're 17, your friends are absolutely integral yeah, and course. fundamental to who you are. Yeah. And so it was the first time that I was, I think, shaken yeah, to the foundations. So as well, that must be... Yeah, well, you, when you go... I'd gone to <coughs> a few funerals and there, there's a sea of old people. Yeah. A sea of old people wearing strange black mm-hmm. outfits that look like uniforms. And his funeral, it was just full of young people, full of our friends. Did he make any funeral plans or anything? Uh after he died, his, some of his friends and family found a poem that he'd written about his death. Oh. And he'd done lots of drawings. He was an artist. Did you ever feel angry that you, he hadn't shared that yeah, with furious you? furious yeah. with him for years. Furious and sad and I questioned our relationship. and mm. our, It's like, how could you be such an amazing friend and not share this with me Mm. Um, I think quite a lot of us felt like that but also over the years I've softened to that and I think that we all we all die differently we all live with dying differently Mm. and but it was it was really hard it was really really hard yeah it must have been well it obviously was a huge catalyst to change how people die for you yeah (laughs) yeah it was and I think it I just couldn't understand why he didn't tell us Mm. I just couldn't understand it and in lots of ways I still don't because I feel like we shared everything yeah absolutely everything the good and the bad you know we had a really I guess healthy friendship in that we would argue and we would disagree but yeah we we just we were such good friends and I didn't understand why he didn't tell me, especially my asking directly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do you he, think it was something a part of him that didn't want to say it, like didn't yeah, want to say it out loud? I'm I dying. think. Well, he he asked for active treatment at every point, yeah. so I think he probably felt at twenty three it wasn't fair that yeah. there was no rhyme or reason why this was happening and it seems ridiculous considering everything that medicine can do that yeah. when you're 23 and you're fundamentally incredibly young and fit and healthy that they can't do something i know this is a problem isn't it with medicine <laughs> like it's amazing and we live in an amazing technological time and you know you can send an email to someone on the other side of the world or you can speak like the way we can there's so much amazing stuff happening, yeah. but people still die. Yeah, and I think there's part of our brains that still really struggles with that. Of like, it does, but that's because the media perpetuates this ridiculous notion that death, dying, and grief are taboo. Yeah, and because we keep calling them taboo, people start believing that they are, mm. and because we don't talk about them in a way, <clears throat> they are natural and normal part of life. Yeah, it is what happens, and we have given them these sort of titles and these descriptions that aren't true and we keep using them over and over and over so everyone believes that you can't talk about them and they also believe that medicine will make them better they don't truly believe that they are mortal creatures Mm. i don't think lots of people it's really strange isn't it like and having done this show for so many episodes now 
the things that I've sort of surprised myself that I've been forced to come to this conclusion. <laughs> just like when people tell me about death now, I'm just like, all right. All right, yeah, of course they did. Like, I've yeah. lost the will. Whereas b- before this show, I would have been like, oh my God, what? And then what happened? Oh my God, they died. <laughs> and now I'm like, why was I ever surprised? Yeah. Why was I ever surprised that someone died? People die. That's the because only thing you can guarantee. It. You can guarantee if you are mm. living, you're going to die. And that we still go, and then they died. And you're like, oh. <gasps> yeah, of course they did. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> like you said, I do think it's so... I mean, yeah, and you're right, there is so it's called like the last taboo isn't it it's like you know we're happy to talk about gender and sexuality and you know all these huge things that are now like not taboo or I was looking just stupid things I was looking at a lady on the tube here it was like covered in tattoos and she had bright pink hair and I was like there was a time when I was a kid that we've all been looking at her and now that's normal it's like it is funny that we still act like but it's fear it's just fear but I do I do think it's a fear that's now created. I think we tell ourselves right. that we're frightened. And actually the truth is most death and dying isn't frightening or mm. full of fear. Some of it is. You know, you can't you can't pretend that it isn't. Some of it is really, really, really difficult. But the actual act of dying, you mean? It's, a, yeah. it's very normal. Mm. It's, you know, yeah. it's a normal part of life. Yeah. And that's a massive part of, it, of why I wanted to do this show as well, because... You don't talk about it. So when it happens to you or you have a, you know... You have no context. You have no context apart from Hollywood. And so you're waiting for your Hollywood moment. You're waiting for them to hold their hand and squeeze your hand and tell you they love you. And as we say on this show endlessly, they don't. They're on morphine. They don't know what's going on. And if you haven't had your chat with them yet, it's probably too late. (laughs) And because we think we're getting this moment, I think people do hold back or they're waiting for the last moment. They absolutely do. And it's, yeah. Or I don't, oh, I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't want to upset them. yeah oh my god i know it's like it's just so silly. dying yeah. <laughs> it's too late they're gonna be upset yeah. this is literally the last chance but i think finality is something that we really struggle with as humans yeah. and i think we don't like it and especially as you said in this day and age when death isn't so present because of medicine or um you know interventions in birth well, things like that we've removed it from the home yes so death has been removed as a sort of social care thing and it's become a medical thing whereas actually death and dying is a social thing it's a social care thing and it's a I think lots of people are trying to reclaim it and bring it back into the home Mm. yeah it's interesting and I get in trouble for comparing them all the time but it is like birth it's a fundamental act of life yeah so that and there are there are many similarities so many similarities which i just it wasn't until i had a child that i was like oh wow this is like and i think fundamental it's so fundamental of course it is you come into the world you go out of the world like there's an entrance and exit (laughs) and they're both very important acts and i mean you know i ended up with a very medical birth because i had to but um i think the movement to make it less so or to be aware that it doesn't have to be like that is incredibly powerful and interesting and that's obviously what's happening with death yeah. At the same time. So when did you um did you train to be an yeah, end of life? I, how do how does one do that? I did some training. I spent five years in acute psychiatry to get the hours. Wow. <clears throat> and then I went from there into palliative care, I guess right, hosp- okay. hospice hospice work. So I'd seen lots of people die. I'd been with my granddad when he died. I was with my nana when she died, but I left with my dad because he didn't want to be in the room. 
So, yeah, I'd seen lots of people die. I'd been with lots of people who died. I hadn't ever really stayed. Mm. Um, I went to see, because I'd missed my friend dying, I went to see him after he died mm. and was quite traumatised by what I saw. I the think, way he looked? Yeah, I, I know now that he'd been embalmed, right. or at least I think he was, just because of the smell. So I wasn't expecting. I don't know if you've ever been into Wax Lyrical, <laughs> that chain of <laughs> candle, candle shops. shops. Yeah, yeah. That's how it smelt, that sort of collective... Waxy. Oh, like being punched in the face by essential oils, mm. a million essential oils all yeah. at the same time and being quite taken aback. And he looked... He looked very waxy. He didn't look asleep. Everyone had told me that when people died, they looked like they were asleep. He didn't look asleep. He just looked dead. Mm. He still had... I, uh, I find that very strange when they use the asleep because they don't look asleep. They look dead. No, they don't, <laughs> they don't look asleep. And interestingly, when my granddad died, he died in the night. And I, my eldest was four, maybe five at the time. And over breakfast, I said, oh, granddad died during the night. And she said, well, I really want to see him. So I took her to see him. And she walked in and she said, he doesn't look asleep. He just looks dead. <laughs> yeah. And I think she felt really cheated. Yeah. That, you know, we'd all been pretending yeah. that he just looked asleep. I don't know who'd been saying to her he looks asleep. Yeah. Because it's not something that I would say. But I, I remember it really, really clearly how annoyed she was that, <laughs> She'd had this idea that he would look like he was sleeping yeah. and actually he just looked really dead. It's an offence to sleep. I think it is. Like sleep is a very restful, kind, yeah. wonderful, regenerative, regenerative? Sure. Yeah. thing. <laughs> and um, death isn't. Death is the end. No. And again, it's this thing of like not, being, not wanting to make anything a full stop. Yeah. So everything has to be like, oh, they're resting, they've gone somewhere, all this, which is instead of going, they're gone, that's it over never see them again because that makes people upset and we do everything we can to avoid being upset it does and also when people die changes start to happen and because people because we don't talk about it because we've got this ridiculous taboo word attached to it people don't realize Mm. or they don't understand what happens and I spend a lot of my time having to explain to people who want to spend time with their people who've died, that changes have occurred. Yeah. And that's really tricky. It's a so really what changes tricky... do you have to sort of... Are we not prepared for them? Um, people start to... There are lots of words that they use in the world. Um, deteriorate. Mm. But basically that means they start to decompose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Some people who have died from certain things start to change quicker or I think we have this expectation that all people's bodies after they've died are... Oh, yeah, fine. But if they've been... Like my dad's like middle with cancer, so it's like... Yeah, sometimes they're not fine at all. Yeah. Um, I work with quite a lot of families, so when very young children or babies have died Mm. um, and they change quite a lot quite quickly wow. and that's really difficult yeah really really difficult is that because they're younger it's smaller smaller yeah we're just not used to the physicality yeah. of our lives yeah. are we no we're not used to it we don't mm. we don't see it and because we don't see it we don't know what to expect mm. and so it's much harder and it's such a i mean it sounds like a sort of stupid thing to say but 
If you go back thousands of years when we were living as packs together in a tribe, whatever word you want to use, you would have seen it, you would have exposed yeah. to it. And I think that's it's the thing of like... It's a bit, I always feel like this, this is a weird thing to say, but Carad's going to say it anyway. You know, like men can walk around topless and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and women can't. And women can't. Yeah. And I always found it so weird because even as a child, I was like, well, how comes he can show his nipples yeah. and the lady can't? And it's a thing, like, we covered ourselves up. We, we do such a good job of, like, painting ourselves as if we aren't animals. Like, I'm wearing lovely clothes and my lipstick's <laughs> nice. And look at me, I'm not, I'm a... My eyebrows are on point. Yeah, my eyebrows are on fleek, girls. And it's like... Everything we're doing is trying to tell ourselves, I'm not an animal and I'm not going to die. Because look how alive I am. Well, there's the whole, you know, Botox and yeah, plastic yeah. surgery. Because Which is literally to stop deteriorating, isn't it? It's yeah. fighting. It's because you're trying to say it's, to the world, I'm not, this face isn't dying yeah, and aging. I'm not getting old. Yeah. But again, when we hadn't, when in you know this myriad wonderful past that I talk about, which is a bit blurry and actually not yeah. that clear, I'm sure an anthropologist will argue with me. But we would have been exposed to death and seen it and seen yeah. these things. Well, more people died. Yeah, and more people died younger. The life expectancy was considerably yeah. lower. We didn't have the medicine that we have now. I went to a really interesting end-of-life conference and there was a speaker who talked about how she was at the forefront of, sort of helping create medicines to keep people alive longer and it was about the future of palliative care and she actually felt that she'd done it a disservice now however wow. many years later she looks back and she thinks that it's not really about quantity and mm. it's all about quality it's about living as good a life as possible not yeah. about living for as long as possible. I know, we're obsessed with the length of it. Yeah, obsessed. When my grandfather died, and I think he was 97, and probably for the last 20, maybe even 30 years of his life, every single day he wished he was dead. Mm. And yet everybody talked about how fabulous it was that he'd got to such a ripe old age. Yeah. He was miserable. Mm. He was absolutely absolutely miserable i'm sure there were moments during his life in the last few years that he felt momentarily yeah. joyful but they were so few and far between yet everybody was just delighted <laughs> that even the language it. isn't it like good innings yeah. ripe old age yeah. actually you know. he he spent a lot of those yeah. years being thoroughly miserable in pain well, I know this is such a cliche to say, but I always thought that when you own animals and a vet is just like, oh, there's no way this dog can carry on. And you're looking at them, you're like, they seem all right. Like, and, you're, and they're like, absolutely, they're in agony. Oh, this is, this is, I wouldn't allow this to happen. And then you go to intensive care. I'm not saying switch off the machines, guys. <laughs> but it is that thing of like, yeah. there's a very good book which has been recommended to me a lot, which I've halfway through called Being Mortal. Yeah, it's really good. Atul Gawande. Thank you. It's fabulous. It's really good. And, and you should listen to his wreath lectures too. Oh, I will They're do. They're fabulous. Yeah, good record, Anna. And, um, you know, he talks very similar things about this desperation to keep people alive. Yeah. And so to because we haven't had that conversation with each other about like, well, do you want to keep me alive no matter what? Mm. The doctors then have to keep them alive because there's a, uh, a family member can't say oh no don't like we talked about it and i know yeah. they won't want to be but this is this you know tiny glimmer of hope perhaps they'll somehow come round from these things and mm. obviously it's easy to talk about and if you are in that situation i'm sure it's extremely painful and difficult but i think like you said the attitude of 
any anything to stay alive is an interesting attitude. It is, and I think everybody hopes for a miracle. Yeah. And so if you're in a situation where your child is on life support... Oh, God, of course. ..you hope for a miracle. And it's almost impossible because of how much you love... Yeah. ..that person to make an objective, sound yeah. decision. Yeah. It's really hard. Like I said, it's not... Yeah. It's not black and white. It's no. not like, this is the right way to do it. But it is there acknowledging is... that the obsession with keeping alive yeah. and, uh, is and, where we're at at the moment. And I also think if we were better at communicating, if we started the conversation earlier, if we allowed people the time and the space to talk about it, there would probably be different outcomes. There wouldn't... Mm. It, it. Well, I don't know. It's so difficult. Yeah. It, because death equates to loss. Mm. Death equates to something somebody that you love no longer being in your life mm. in a physical way of course they're still in your life emotionally mm. they you know in the food that you cook in the songs that you sing they're they're with you but they're not physically with you mm. you can't hold their hand you can't hug them you can't spend yeah. time with them so it does equate to loss so it it is sad it's really sad oh, it's desperately sad but yeah the it's so hard, isn't it? Because it's almost like it's so sad that it that is why it remains this strange taboo, not taboo, weird thing that people don't want to talk about because the sadness enshrines it in this, like, like almost like if you see someone crying and people are like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask them what's wrong. Well, and that's like the subject yeah. of death becomes this like, oh, maybe I should just walk yeah. away because it looks well, like quite I, messy over there. I didn't say anything to them because I didn't want to make them sad. Well, they are sad. They are sad I yeah. didn't say I'm really, really sorry or, you know, what can I do or acknowledge this awful thing mm. that's happening for them because I didn't want to make them sad. They are sad. I know I always think when people say that, like, the worst thing's already happened. Yeah. You saying something won't be the no. worst thing that day. But actually, you saying something acknowledges their pain. Yeah. There's this thing called bearing witness to your Ooh. pain and that making a huge difference and actually making it's not even you're not making someone cry. Mm. The situation is this. You are acknowledging them. You're standing before them and you're saying Oh, this is awful mm. and actually people need that not all people but lots of people really really need that how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. So do you have any advice, which is a difficult question because I get asked it all the time. Do you have any advice for someone who's like, oh, talk to people, just yeah. talk to them and sit with them. If they don't want to talk, don't talk, but mm. sit with them, be with them. Let them know they're not alone. Yeah. Let them know that you can bear the unbearable for them. Mm. What they're going through is unbearable. And by not being there, by crossing over the street, by ignoring them by ignoring what's going on you're letting them know that it's so unbearable that they can't even have somebody with them yeah and that they're right it yeah, is unbearable that they're right and, and no one else can carry that pain exactly carry it for mm. them even if it's just for a little bit show up keep showing up just be there and i think that's the thing what people don't realize is i think sometimes feel like it's a disease and like if they carry it they'll catch it yeah like I'll have all this pain forever. And you won't. You can't. It's not your pain. But no. you can carry it. It's like a bag. Carry it for five minutes. Yeah, take, take My shoulders feel better. Yeah. Exactly. Take the weight for a moment. And if lots of people take the weight mm. for a moment, it, it just it changes mm. how they see it and how they feel it. And it becomes less unbearable for a moment. I think people are frightened to ask mm. if there's something they can do. Some people, because they generally don't want to do anything, and so they're frightened if they ask that someone will actually require something of yeah. them. People are frightened to... I think they're frightened to be wrong. That's they're what I frightened think. to get things wrong, I think Absolutely. I really think fundamentally they want to help and they're afraid of being wrong, yeah. and so that causes an inertia. Yeah. Because you think, well, if I just stay still and don't do anything, I'm not being yeah. right or wrong. They're afraid to intrude. Mm. Oh, I, I didn't want to go because I didn't want to intrude on their grief. You won't be intruding. Mm. You absolutely won't be. And also, you can get a feeling, you know. Yeah. You can get a feeling that maybe this isn't the right time, but then go back. Yeah. And, and often people talk to me about, how after the first year things get worse because everybody disappears. Their normal life continues and they think, well, you know, I've got you through first birthday, first anniversary, Mm. first Christmas. I've got you through all of that. My life, I need to go back to Mm. my normal. But then everyone disappears all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on the show. I do think the first year is... I do think it's the worst. But it doesn't mean that the rest aren't bad. It's just, I think, the first is um, such a blur. 
And I always think if you can get through the blur of the first year, you sort of come out slightly, you poke your head above your shell and you're like, oh, okay, what's happening? But that's when you sort of need people. I think everybody's different. I yeah. think every single grief is different. Yeah, every true. grief is individual. I don't, I think for some people, the first year is the worst. For some people, it isn't. You know, I don't think there is any right or wrong yeah, or you're right. any path there are no stages of grief no I cannot believe I still go to conferences and get told there are stages of there are no stages of grief I thought we all knew that no and I was like why not. are people still talking about it and because I'm like two, I heard on a podcast that they do very intelligent people talking about it and I was like I thought like that's a myth we yeah. all know that now it's but... rubbish yeah it's absolute rubbish and it's really unhelpful mm. and actually it can really damage people really damage yeah, people. they think, again, they think they're not doing it right. Yeah. We all think there's a there textbook no, we haven't read. There's no right or wrong way yeah. to do grief. And how you feel is how you feel and you have to honour that mm. and stop telling people yeah. <laughs> that, you know, they should be over something or they should be coping better or they should be feeling sad. Yeah, I think any should is the problem. It's ridiculous. It's just like, whatever, there's yeah. no should. The moment you're saying, well, you should, it, there isn't. And I always, I think that people who tell people that they should or they feel that there are these stages of grief are people who have never lost somebody who is fundamental to them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I did an event last night for um, a brilliant, brilliant organisation called Let's Talk About Loss who organise the events for young people with grief. And that's all anyone kept saying was some people just don't get it. Yeah. And they, those people can be 90 years old and not yeah, get it. But, and it's like, all right not to get yeah, it. Yeah, totally. But say, don't, yeah. you know, don't push your judgment or push your what I think. Mm. If you don't get it, that's all right. But listen to other yeah. people. Listen, listen to, to how... This is the trouble I find as well. It's like the people who are most confident about their opinions are the people who often haven't been through it. And you get this in all forms of life. You know, like I said, I'm a performer. And let me tell you, people who don't do comedy often have great opinions about what they think is funny. Are oh, they like to tell you on Twitter or in person why they didn't like that sitcom or what? And you think, you don't write comedy. What on earth makes you think you know what's funny? Perhaps you're wrong. But go, no, I didn't laugh. And it's the same thing with. With people who haven't lost people, like yeah. they think, well, no, this is how I would feel. Mm. You have no idea how but you're going to feel. You have absolutely no idea, and you also you can imagine how you might feel. Oh, you can, oh we can all imagine when you're put <laughs> in that position. You have no concept. You have no concept at all. There were so many people last night who at this let's talk about loss event who said to me, oh, you know, my mum or my dad died or this happened. And then I went to a festival, I went to a party, I went back to my exams, and all my friends were like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, none of those friends know how it feels to be you. Like, no. who know? you do all sorts of things yeah. because you have to. But you also, you need some normality back. Yeah. What has happened is so abnormal mm. to your world. It's changed your world so it's blown it apart yeah. they're actually just doing something normal I always say to people keep inviting people to things yeah. you know, if yes. they're unwell or if they've if somebody's just died keep inviting them even if they say no a hundred times keep inviting them yeah. because you need a little bit of normal yeah you need a little bit of actually there is a normal life still I yeah. don't feel like, normal life still exists. And it is kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, isn't it? Because if you do go out to dinner or a bar or a cinema or something, and even if you might hate every minute of it because you feel like this is fucking awful, mm. 
some bit of you is like, oh, that's what normal life is. Yeah. And some bit of you thinks, perhaps I will get back there one day. Yeah. Even if you run out the room crying and your friends yeah. are like, she's not okay. Like, just being around people who are laughing. And it can be a very painful experience, but something yeah. in you is like, one day that might be my world again, maybe. Yeah. And I think you need that reminder. Otherwise, you just forget what normal is. Yeah, and that sort of strange reminder that life does go on. Yeah, that which is incredibly painful, but actually... Really painful. Incredible. I, I really think this 20 years in, and I didn't think this five, ten years in, of like, life goes on, is so painful. You're like, no, it's the best thing the, that the world does to you is it shows you that you yeah. can go on. Yeah. And when you're in pain, you feel like, fuck those guys for existing. How is everyone carrying on without me? But the more I've got away from that death, the more I think that's the gene. That's how this world exists, is that you keep being forced to look and you keep being shown life goes on. And so eventually you think, I have to go on. That's how we survive. Yeah. There's this really beautiful model of grief by a lady called Lois Tonkin, and it's about the idea that your grief always remains the same size. Yes. So from the day that it happened to forever it mm. remains the same size but what happens is your life grows around it yeah. and it cushions it and so you know one day 50 years later it can you can it can feel as painful as it did and that's yeah. absolutely fine but on lots of the days the life that you've grown around that grief cushions it and makes makes life enjoyable and there are there is life with grief mm, definitely there is life with grief and I think that's what um did she do that drawing there's a drawing of that with like a squiggle of grief and like life going around it I think someone's taken her I'm thing. sure I'm um, sh- lots of people have taken it lots of times and what's and her name Lois she's called Lois Tonkin she's amazing she's a this really really incredible lady she lives in New Zealand and oh. she's a lecturer there Wow, I'm going to credit her now because I've seen that. That's now the new groovy theory of grief, which I love. Cruise um, have taken it on and she comes over every wow. year and she does cruise bereavement training. Who are, I constantly recommend. They're an amazing service if you really need someone to talk to. Um, so what is your role as an end-of-life dealer? When do you get involved with the family or is it just when they decide to ask you to? Yeah, so lots of the time I get involved from diagnosis. So I will work with people from diagnosis all the way through and then I'll... I'll keep working with people, with their families afterwards. Sometimes I don't work directly with the person who's unwell. I work with their family to support them. Right. So we create a kind of... Because you have to care for the carers. Mm. You know, we, we don't look after our carers enough. We don't give them enough credit. And they really, really need support. Sometimes I work with friends of people who are being oh, supported wow. um sometimes i work over email sometimes i work on the phone depending on what people want i worked with this amazing lady only on email wow for a really long time because she had the most incredible medical team she was in hospice care they were absolutely phenomenal as the vast majority are and she had the most incredibly supportive family and she just she wrote to me and said i have all of this and I can see that I have the most exceptional care Mm. in every regard but I can't cope and I need to tell somebody who I'm not going to hurt that I can't cope so for months and months and months she wrote to me about how she felt and it was just beautiful but I didn't realize the impact that it would have on me because I'd never done sort of email support before. When she died, I didn't know. 
I didn't know that she died and her email stopped coming and I had a sort of inkling. I left it for a little bit and because we'd, we had this agreement that because she didn't want her family to know, mm. I would never contact her. She would always contact me yeah. first. So I never felt that I could write and say, oh, I'm just dropping a line to yeah. see how you're doing. Um, and I Googled her and I found out she died because of an online obituary. Wow. And I was really sad yeah. and, and felt a sort of wave of unexpected grief. Yeah, I can understand that because it's not you weren't in the room and you weren't it there. It was and just strange, know. and I I think because <clears throat> she wrote to me and said would would I support her and I said of course I will, mm. <laughs> but, and I I didn't really think about the process or what yeah. it would mean or you know I I think very carefully I have I have supervision when I'm working with people face to face when mm. I'm sort of working directly with people, but it it just hadn't occurred to me that an email relationship yeah. um, would be something that would be really, really quite difficult to lose. I think we forget with emails because everyone's like, oh, emails. It's like, they're letters. Yeah, they are. They're letters. Yeah. And letters are really important and really about connection and human and not yeah. all emails, but no. <laughs> long emails that are being used instead of letters yeah. have a lot of yeah, yeah. meaning. And it's a real privilege. I mm. feel very honoured and privileged that people trust me and open up to me and ask me to be with them. You know, end of life is precious. Yeah. Incredibly precious. So the fact that they choose, some of them anyway, <laughs> some of them choose to spend time with me or to give me some of their time yeah, at yeah. end of life, I just feel really honoured. So every email that she wrote it felt like she was writing a letter and I felt yeah. very privileged to receive it wow so then sometimes you're with them as they die or it de- completely depends on what their choice is yeah it really really depends on and what their choice is and actually more often than not I'm not what I try to do is empower the people around them who love them to be there for mm. them they talk about working invisibly right like an invisible support Mm. so none of it's about me none of it's about me being there it's all about helping them be there remain in the process right up until the end because that can be really difficult and have is there a it might be a stupid question but like have you seen any similarities with death or do you think every death is completely different every death is completely different Um, that's amazing. Every day. I mean, of course there are similarities. And I guess I'm not a doctor, I'm mm. not a nurse. I don't work every single day in death and dying. They would probably say something completely yeah. different. But the people that I work with, every single one is completely different. I think, you know, lots of the time when people go onto a syringe driver and they are very, very, very heavily medicated because they are feeling so unwell and they're mm. in such a lot of pain probably lots of those deaths to a medic will yeah. look similar they will look look well those people are all on a similar drug so yeah i guess there must be a similar effect to the human body yeah but, but you know from from my perspective and i also think from a family's perspective or from the perspective of the people that are around and love the person who is dying it's all very very different and mm. all very new most of the time, carers have never been in that position before. Yeah. They've never watched anyone die before or been with someone who's dying. 
um, lots of people who are arranging funerals are arranging them for the first time. They've That's never... That's so common. I hear that so many times of, like, just having no idea how to organise because no. no one's ever told you. And it's, like, no. this crazy thing that I think... I genuinely think it should be taught in school. It should be. Like, it why should are we be... not told how to get a mortgage no. and how to book a funeral? <laughs> they've, they've just... Put, um, PSHE is now mandatory, but it's only mandatory for sex and relationships. Mm. Why it's not mandatory for death, dying and grief, I mm. have no idea. They and should definitely cover grief and dying because, like we said should. at the beginning, it's definitely going to happen. Well, so the statistics show that one child in every single classroom in the UK has been significantly bereaved, which generally means a sibling oh. or a parent. God. Quite sobering yeah. statistics. Well, as I've talked about before, you know, I was at school when my dad died and um, I had there were two girls in my year that also lost their dads, one I was very good friends with. But, yeah, it was, you know, so that's that's already three of us. Yeah. And I actually spoke to my mum the other day because I was like, did they offer any counselling? She was like, no. No one said anything. Which I know now from talking to people now like Gary Andrews who his kids school were amazing and yeah. straight away so I do think it has changed but I'm sure there's still schools out there that don't there certainly are schools out there that, that just I mean it was just yeah it was never discussed I well th- teachers would be like I know you've been having a difficult time <laughs> that's why but it doesn't mean you can't focus on your studies that's sort of I have some really really awful stories oh, about it makes me so sad it's really really sad i think generally if a school has a very strong pastoral care yeah. team then children are well supported if they don't have a strong pastoral care yeah. team they're not i think also there needs to be a real a really good communication between home and school yeah. and often that is <clears throat> lacking for whatever reason but um yeah, I've I've worked with kids who have been given detentions for not turning up to school yeah. for the day of their parents' funeral. Wow. Um, I've worked with kids who teachers have all been sent out the memo that their parent has died, but they haven't read it, so they ask in front of the class, well, why weren't you here? Why haven't you done your homework? You know, it, it's not good enough. No. We are not... We're not being good enough at this at all and I guess then the message you're sending to that child is it's a shameful thing and yeah. you should keep it to yourself because no one understands yeah and that's kind of how I felt mm. I definitely had some te- like they weren't all bad and I definitely had some that that tried my school I didn't feel like there was anyone who no. you know I could have really gone to which is I'm sure some of them would have felt, would have been fine had I done it but again the, the moment it got paid attention to is when I started being really naughty because it was like oh she's really not doing anything or did they put two and two together did they I think actually I uh, to be fair yes I think everybody was like but then no one quite said it was more like a bit awkward we all know why she's doing this um who's gonna say it <laughs> so they would sort of say well you've had a difficult time and I think <laughs> My fucking dad's fucking dying, yeah. like, you know. But yeah, I think, again, I just think, also they, to be fair to them, I don't think anyone, it wasn't in the language, it wasn't a thing. No. We don't have a vocabulary yeah. for it. And I think that it does it a huge disservice. And it's, we need to create one. Yeah. So is this kind of what you, <laughs> this is your mission, I guess, to try and get death and grief yeah, to mission be. sounds, it makes it sound like... <laughs> It sounds no, like it, it's become your. It has. I. I feel your life's work. Yes, and I. And every time I leave it because it gets too much or it's too sad, I end up coming back. Yeah. Um, How do you look after yourself when you I are have, someone who is dealing with grief, asking for a friend? <laughs> I have supervision. 
Um, I think so that's really, really important. It's, it's basically uh, quite a formal catch-up <laughs> and where I can just go, it's confidential, so I can just go blah right. and talk about what's going on. Sometimes I don't know what to do with a client or I'm mm. really stuck and they help me figure out what to do and how to do it. Sometimes I feel really sad. Yeah. Sometimes I feel really, really sad. I mainly work with young people and children. It's a really, really difficult... Mm. They they describe them as out-of-order deaths. Wow. Because it's sort of unexpected, you know, yeah. out, out of order as in you, as a parent, you never expect your child to yeah, die first. Yeah. And so that's an incredibly difficult thing God, to work I with. Imagine. It's hard. It's an extremely sad yeah. topic, but like we've talked about, it doesn't mean it but shouldn't be talked about. No, and there's light in it and there's humour and there's nuance and there's mm. all sorts of things you can't just sort of shove a blanket it's sad yeah. therefore we mustn't open it up as a subject and yes it is sad it's mm. really really sad and but we do it a real disservice by not talking about it i think that's a lovely way to put it that it is sad but that's not the full stop no. and i think nuance is something that is severely lacking in so many areas of our lives right yeah. now. So many areas where we try and simplify things. And that's not just not how life works. And I think, yeah, you know, like, birth isn't simple. Birth isn't straightforward. Being alive isn't straightforward. No. Just being a person on this planet is being complicated. Being alive is really tricky. It's tricky. Oh, it's tricky. Yeah. Some days are better than others. Yeah. It can be very tricky. And equally, death is... The, completely the same and yet we're always surprised to find mm. it being tricky or being sad or being confusing or being funny yeah. and I think that's a lovely thing to hold on to that it's a nuanced death and grief and bereavement and loss is a, a big squiggly mess and it's all incredibly personal to you yeah and I think by people talking about it other people will realize that what they're feeling is normal mm. because we don't talk about it people feel like they're going mad yeah they genuinely have no idea what grief feels like or mm. looks like because we don't talk about it and they they don't understand that actually what's happening to them is perfectly normal you get lots of people in a room who've all been who've all lost somebody really important to oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's all of a sudden, it's like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, you know, how I'm feeling, you you felt like that at some point? It's so normal. It's so normal. It's so normal. And I think, we've talked about this before on the show, but when you have your heart broken, the world is there to talk to you, show you examples, and be like, yeah, we all felt like that. We yeah. all did that. Yeah. And this is how you get through it. Yeah. And with death, we, we we could do with... We could, but I would add a caveat to that, that we should never, ever compare one grief yes. to another yeah, yeah, or yeah. one death or one dying. That, again, does a real disservice to someone else's yes. own grief or own death or yeah. own dying. And I think that's really, really important that you can't compare. You can't... No, no, of course. And you, you might feel fine and someone else might feel awful yeah. and that's fine. But I think those sort of... Those general touchstones that we have of... How was your funeral director? How was your hospital experience? Did you know funeral director is the least complained about profession? Wow. And that's because people are so sad. Yeah. And also... <laughs> or they're really good. <laughs> we're not so sure. We're not so sure. But yeah, I think it's... 
it's massively important to remember that your grief is completely personal, but you're not alone. You're not alone in Absolutely. grieving. No. This, like you said, it's in, a universal. Yeah, on that tube carriage of life. Yeah, we've all been touched by it in some way, however near or far. Yeah. And that's the connection that is really important to And we all will be. And I wonder if that if that stops people broaching people as well as the idea that it's really difficult to look at someone and think, Oh, that could be me. Yeah, definitely. But it is it's gonna happen, guys. It is. Uh, we're all gonna die. You're gonna, gonna die. die. I wanted to end on a cheery note, Anna, but um <laughs> I feel that is cheery. I think it is cheery because I feel so much better being much more just much more aware of it of like yeah it's gonna happen i think you enjoy and this is a huge generalization and of course every day isn't largely different to everyone else's but i do think when you are aware of your mortality you look at things slightly differently Mm. things taste a bit different yeah if you feel like you can eat gelato every single day (laughs) for a million years it's all right yeah if you feel like maybe you only get to have a few more of those it tastes absolutely delicious and i i think it's really important that we all acknowledge that we don't have forever I think it's more important we all eat gelato and really appreciate Like, let that be the takeaway. <laughs> good gelato, Only guys. good gelato, yeah, though. Yeah. There's I'm some you. really you use bad the word gelato. I'm already aware that you're a connoisseur. Thank well. you so much, Anna, for coming to talk to me. Thank about you. Thank you for having me. Your experience. You can follow Anna on Twitter at Anna underscore E-O-L underscore doula, which is D-O-U-L-A. You can head to the website lifedeathwhatever.com to find out about the organisation. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. And the show was edited by Kate Holland with thanks to Whistledown Studios. Music was provided by The Glow Ensemble. And remember, you are not alone. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.